Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast. I'm your podcast host, Peter Ahmad, recording from Cape Town, South Africa, since June 2019. The Talking Transformation podcast provides an open and accessible platform for built environment professionals and interest groups to share their reflections and aspirations relating to the transformation of places and spaces in South Africa. It's intended to be a celebration of the individuals and community groups who are supporting formal and informal processes that are addressing the challenges of South Africa's history and shaping the future of our neighborhoods and cities. One of the ongoing challenges for professionals is to cut through the jargon and the rigidity of processes and procedure in bureaucracies to convey complex messages to communities and decision makers. It's a perennial challenge and one that even with the advent of more tech and more tools, you can take your pick, whether it's PowerPoint, social media and the like, we don't seem to be able to improve on this. Diversity in community and language with our 11 official languages are not unique to South Africa. Most global cities reflect diverse communities, cultures and language. Storytelling and the passing on of information within and between generations is common throughout the globe, common throughout our history. Pictures carved onto the rocks tens of thousands of years ago are evidence of this. Look no further in South Africa than the Drakensberg San rock art that exists in the Drakensberg World Heritage Site. And it's against this background that we are looking at this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. It's somewhat different from our routine Talking Transformation script and speaks to two graphic illustrators from Canada and South Africa respectively, who have used their talent to tell stories that have shaped or currently shaping our cities and communities. I've been wanting to have this discussion since coming across the internationally acclaimed Crossroads, I Live Where I Like, a graphic history publication. It's a non-fictional cartoon strip set in the 1970s South Africa that tells the powerful and moving story of the women-led resistance to apartheid laws, planning principles, and the community rhetoric of that time. To understand Crossroads in Cape Town, you can begin to understand the trauma and legacy of apartheid in South Africa and the role and the bravery of, that women played in shaping and fighting the authorities. The story embodies the mantra, you strike a woman, you strike a rock. Watinta Abafazi, Watinta Imbakoto. The Crossroads graphic novel has just been reprinted for a second print run, and I'm truly privileged to welcome as our first guest, Nathan Trantral, one of the two Trantral brothers who illustrated the book. He's a poet, a cartoonist, writer and translator, and currently lectures in the School of Languages at Rhodes University on this very subject of graphic novels. I'm really looking forward to understanding the genesis of the project, how the book was received locally and internationally, and the importance of the medium in this age of social media and the attention deficit that we seem to be frequently caught up in. I'm also joined by the inspiring Julia Louise Pereira, based in Toronto, Canada. Her recent comic strip in the UK's Guardian newspaper tackled the subject of climate change in cities and what has been done and what can be done to address this global crisis via small scale and larger city building initiatives. Her comic strip, Cities Need to be Redesigned for Climate Crisis, can they make us happy too? Really resonated by reflecting on actual families affected by hurricanes Ida and Sandy in the United States. The point hammered home is that like with so many urban issues, the impacts and the worst of the effects are so often borne by the most disadvantaged communities. As the comic strip suggests, it's tempting to design a city by drawing lines on a map, but that can sometimes ignore what cities are for to serve the people who live there. The strip raises the issue of cultural identity, sense of place and belonging, and in a clear and precise graphical form, 
begins to illustrate issues of redlining, physical buffers between communities. It's an absolute masterclass in demonstrating the multiple agendas and challenges faced by cities and the approaches from small interventions to grander city building initiatives. Both South African and American case studies use real people telling their stories to frame the graphics and storyline. They're an inspiring and informative means of digesting the complexities and many instances, traumatic stories. I do hope you enjoy their reflections and their messages in this episode. So it's just gone three o'clock on Sunday, the 22nd of May, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome two guests on the Talking Transformation podcast today. One up in Toronto, Canada, many, many thousands of kilometers away. One of our guests in the Grahamstown area in the Eastern Cape. Welcome to you both. Let's start with yourself, Julia, in Toronto. Welcome to Talking Transformation podcast. How are you keeping? How are we finding you? What's keeping you busy at the minute? I just moved to a new place, so I'm getting used to everything, trying to keep busy, working full-time as well, uh, painting murals in my house. But besides that, I'm doing great. Yeah. Welcome. As I say, nine o'clock your side. Hope you've had your coffee. Hope you're ready to go. Across in the Eastern Cape, Nathan, how are you keeping your side? Where do we find you? What's been keeping you busy your side, sir? Oh, yeah, man. I'm, I'm just busy. I'm just busy writing mostly. I'm just, it's a nice day, nice day outside. It's a bit cold, but nice and sunny, which is perfect for me. But otherwise, I've just been writing a lot. Before we came on, I was saying this is a very different type of podcast to the one that we normally do. Normally, we've got urban designers, town planners, and the like. Here we have two illustrators who have been on their own journey, have uh, done some amazing, really groundbreaking work. We're going to talk a bit about some of the pieces that inspired today's episode. But for the benefit uh, of our listeners, tell us a bit about how you got into the whole question of illustrating, what inspires you, and uh, what brings you here today for this conversation. Maybe we can just kick off with yourself, Julia, as our international guest. I've been illustrating since, I think, grade nine, <laughs> which is like when I was 10, so a, a long time ago. And I've start off doing drawings of my favorite book characters. I've always been interested in illustrating like story format and I was always into comics, reading manga, reading graphic novels. And so I just took that into university, wanted to do children's books. I kind of do everything, but I, I was doing children's books, murals and everything, but I've focused a little bit more now into doing comics and I love educational content that's not patronizing or treating the audience as if they're stupid. I'm trying to educate people through comics, through my non-fiction comics, because I also do fiction comics, and bring light some kind of a niche or untalked about subjects that maybe the general public doesn't really know about. That's how I kind of got into illustrating. A goal of mine is to make my work accessible for all kinds of people, like the elderly who don't necessarily understand what's happening in the current world. Like they maybe only get their news sources from very limited places, which tend to be biased. I kind of wanted to make sure that it was understandable and clear and resonated with everyday people and not just sound like some snooty academic who kind of looks down upon the masses 
Yes. Because I know that's not the intention of academics and researchers are, but I think like some of the jargon that is used can be intimidating or difficult to understand. So me coming in, breaking it down into a visual format is something I'm really, really happy about because I feel like the visual medium is, I think, especially in the past when you know, people thought, oh, comics are just for little kids. Comics are for nerdy guys in their teen years. And they're just these lowbrow, whatever. I hate that idea that comics are lowbrow and they're not for everyone. It's more, more like you just haven't found the right comic for you because <laughs> there are some amazing comics done by different, completely different types of people, people who do nonfiction, personal stories, people who do high fantasy, people who do books for kids about growing up, comics about just anything. It's a a fun, engaging medium, especially maybe for people who have trouble focusing, like people with ADHD or some kind of learning disability where they can't sit and read a tome you know, a 700 page book. And it's not like they're stupid, but they just can't get past the wall of text. And so I think visual mediums can really build that bridge between academic and the public. That's what I love about them. Every once in a while, I'll have an idea and I'll hit up my editor and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And hopefully my editor will be like, that's a cool idea. And then we'll go on a four month long process <laughs> to get it done. <laughs> lots of editing, lots of lots of scrapped. Looking forward to hearing how that whole process sort of unfolds. And as you say, the edit side of things, I can imagine you know, editing a report. Uh, I can only imagine how an editing of a, of a comic strip goes and the time and the effort and the various pains that get left out. Nathan, how much of this resonates with your story and how you got in, involved in illustrating and, uh, and the other elements of your career? I've been illustrating a long time. I've been doing this as long as I can remember. I think first time I started thinking about it professionally, I would have been grade eight. I remember that very, very clearly. I would have been grade eight. But I have to say yeah, that I work with my brother, my older brother. So I was grade eight. He was just finishing school. And this kind of conversation started around, around, around doing comic books. Because we always people we're always drawing. In the past, I think where that the seed comes from, the confluence of two things really. It's um Hershey Stinton and the Street Fighter video game. Um Street Fighter Two. The our local library had had all the Tintin books. And the fisheries had the Street Fighter game. And I just remember looking at the Hershey's artwork and to me I kind of felt like it felt like a god put in earth. Like like a rock or a tree. which just always there. It's like it's kind of perfection. And then looking at the at the artwork and the movement on, on the video game. And all the kids liked it. But for us, it was like this. I couldn't breathe when I looked at it. It was the same for my brother. It just kind of was an overwhelming experience. Even though we're telling the kind of stories we tell, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. It always starts with that kind of stuff. It starts with, with adventure and exciting artwork. So it starts there always the kind of, and that changes over time, of course. But for me, it was definitely there. And... Right now, I'm just still doing work that's kind of influenced by that, but the subject matter has become more concerned with what's going on. Your strip, Julia, was really looking to the future. It was looking at this this existential crisis that we're facing around climate change. 
and what other efforts and aspects that we can change in our habits, but also look at the research of real people and real life stories, particularly through the, the hurricanes there in the US. Whereas Nathan, yours was, was really looking back at the trauma and the very real story of the women of Crossroads and apartheid era South Africa. So on the one hand, the current and the future, in your instance, Nathan, looking back to a particularly nasty time, a particularly traumatic time for South Africa. Can you tell us a bit about that Crossroads story, how you came to be involved, Nathan, with your brother, with a handful of other collaborators in terms of writers, in terms of telling the story, and then how you started to engage with the, the women who really lived that experience and how the translation of that very, very difficult time into this amazing and rich comic strip and graphic novel now that's just been republished this last month, if I'm not mistaken. It's not technically being republished. It's the first time it was published was by PM Press in North America, and now it's published here by Jakana. What, what we did with Crossroads was Kony did a year of research. It was before we met her. This was done for a PhD thesis. Kony's a historian. And this, this is Benson. This is Dr. Connie Benson, correct? Yeah. Yeah. She's a historian, and I think it's a lot of research based on 60 oral histories and a lot of workshops and, and, and a lot of um, people working in the field. And so after she'd done that, she approached us, my brother and I, because we were, we, because a year before that, we finished a, a, a kind book called Colors, and that was dealing with the same subject matter, but in a, in a contemporary context. The first thing that drew me to the story was there's a lot of history, my own history, that I was completely unaware of. I can say with complete transparency that the, the stories of the woman of Crossroads, I knew nothing about that, absolutely nothing about it. So for me, it was the revelation of working on something like that. The experience is just an extension, my experience rather, is just an extension of the experience. You now, if that if Crossroads was the film and then my experience would be the sequel. And so to me, it felt very natural to be to be drawn to that story. It felt like a natural part of my own of my own work or my own kind of theme theme. The theme I'm working with as as an artist, I didn't have to reframe my mind or reframe my thinking to work on it. It was just in a flow now. It was just just moving along with it. And, and so that for me, that's kind of thing that drew me into the story. That kind of thing that that that, that resonated with me. But it's such a lot of surprises for me personally. The book. Uh, it wasn't just uh, working on something. It was kind of experience that affected so much of other areas of my life. If we if we come to yourself, Julia, contemporary issue, but looking at, at recent history, people's experiences, their own trauma in respect of uh, flood events, climatic change, and some of the things that can be done. One of the main messages that came through in your strip was, in so many of these instances, it's often the poorest of the poor who really pay the biggest price for that. How did you tell what is always a, quite a complex story? And how did you come to put that together? And how did that whole gig with the Guardian newspaper come about? Maybe last year or the year before, I did like a cold email, because that's what freelance illustration is about. It's cold emailing, which is intimidating. <laughs> Just send it out into the email and hope you get something back. But my editor for my previous comic liked my idea and we went with it. And so for this one, basically there was another editor who helped me on that comic as well. And then he asked me to illustrate another story. And so because I already knew Alvin, I just emailed him and I was like, hey, 
can we work on another comic? And he liked my idea of urban design and climate change and redesigning cities. And so from there, it was head down research. And as I was researching and looking through all of these journal articles, these case studies, I noticed that Philadelphia came up quite a bit because they're doing a lot of green initiatives in that city. And I was like, I know someone in Philadelphia who is in a low income situation. Then I remembered her story that she had told us last year of hiding in her bathroom during the tornado warning because there was no basement to go to and because the first floor was flooded. This perfectly illustrates what I'm trying to do. So I asked her permission if I could use her story. And so we utilized that sort of personal connection that people could relate to and brought it into the more scholarly statistics and the research behind what was happening with our current infrastructure. In general, our infrastructure has not been built to withstand climate change. And so a lot of cities all over the world are needing to now adapt and change to basically retrofit to withstand extreme climate crisis. I originally was going to go for a sad ending and I was like, now we're screwed. <laughs> but, but then I was like, no, I need to get some experts in here. I need to see if my perspective here is correct. I talked to a researcher who works out of New York and Spain, Pablo Herreros Cantus. He's an amazing person. I had such great insight. I also talked to a professor in the UK, Harriet Bulkley, and they were just fantastic, such lovely people to talk to. And they gave me some great insight into their work and into what I could add to my comic. What was the response that they gave you? They were, were super excited about talking about their research, I guess, because they normally don't talk to other people outside of the academic community about their research, but they were like super hype about talking with me and seeing the final work, seeing me draw their little faces <laughs> in the comic. Yeah. And I think they provided such great insight and then them sharing it to their community was super super nice to see all of their colleagues and their followers be wow this is such a great insight I'm, i recognize that person and i respect their opinion and i respect their credentials and everything they really helped me reframe the perspective of how i was doing the comic so a <laughs> uh, long process but then i basically wrote like an essay it was such a long script and I was like, this isn't a comic. This is a small novel. And so my editor really helped me chop it down. He was like, cut, 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 cut out so much stuff. And, you know, because I'm like, I have to include everything. So he really helped me with like the chopping and the condensing and the making it small so that it's not a novel. And then we went into the illustration phase, like the sketches and everything, colored it finalized it and then shoo, done published yeah and then london here we come email <laughs> yeah <laughs> nathan i mean it's interesting to contrast on the one hand as you said uh, dr connie benson's research was there that was i guess your foundation for telling the story for storyboarding arranging the chapters 
How did you go about splitting up the work? You'd mentioned about that relationship you have with your brother, the working relationship. Which parts were your strengths versus his, or was it a constant mix up? And when you look at the book and when you look at the, the way it's put together, you can almost see there's sort of slightly different uh, styles in the same way that you'd think of a writing style that would differ. You can see there's a, a slightly different approach, but it all hangs together very coherently and makes for a, say, a beautiful read of a very difficult story. The only person who was new to, to, to our group was Coney. But so me and Andre, my brother now, and Ashley Marie, who's other was the other illustrator, we we've been working together for a long time at that point. So we had a nice kind of setup. I wouldn't call it nice because we fight constantly. But we we have a setup. What happened was essentially if I had to break down the roles, I would say we had two writers, that would be Coney and Andre. Um, Andre was adapting Coney's text. I'd say the two may not would be me and Ashley. And so you can imagine this kind of, with so many roles, obviously it's going to be a lot of conflict. Unfortunately for us, the conflict was very rarely about the work. <laughs> Conflict's always about other stuff. When you're working on a project like this and you're working so closely together, you're in each other's space all the time, constantly. So you can imagine on nuts, we drive each other. So if it wasn't me and Andre, it would be Andre and Ashley. And then we also have a kind of thing where, because Kony is in charge of the history, so we're kind of scared of Kony as well, because we, we're going to show Kony stuff and then she's going to say, no, that's, that's not accurate. And then I'm going to be angry because I don't want to redraw anything. With so much work just to do it in the first place. But you know, if you're talking about the history, you can't really argue that. You know what I mean? So there's always this kind of fear that you're working with. I just want to do this thing once and when it's done, it's done. You don't want to go get back to anything. So it's all that kind of stuff, all the adaptation. It adapted the text from, this was from the PhD thesis that counted up. And then, so he broke it down into comic book form. And then I would, actually it's kind of simple because with him, you can just tell him, um, throw this, throw that, throw that, and he'll just do it. It's like a workhorse. He has no interest in having long discussions or <laughs> he just does it with you, with you, what you ask him to do. With me, it's difficult because I never want to do anything anyone tells me to do. So if I understand this way, then I'm going to do it a completely different way. I'm, like, I'm the guy who's messed up the whole plan. I'm aware of this, <laughs> but I can't help myself. But it's also because you know, I couldn't approach the story as this kind of, like it's everything fits into this diagram. Because to me, it's a creative book. So I have to engage with it. I have to fight with it. I have to struggle with it. There has to be, to be surprised at some point at, at how things turn out. Because when you have this kind of text, the framework is the history. So I have to find ways to move as freely as possible in that. It's never as seamless as this well-oiled machine as you'd want it to be. It, it never is that way. It's always messy. It's, you're always surprised at the end of the day that you've actually managed to finish this thing. And my original idea and Andre's original idea was we're going to take this whole history of Crossroads. We're going to put it to 12 pages. don't know why we thought that was possible. But that was, that was, that's what we wanted to do. And the length of the narrative was quite a long book. It was never intended to be that long. Over the course of, I think, maybe two years, every time we finished our page, we published that. Cheers to Coney for, for getting funding to do that, actually. But, but so at the end of it, we had this whole book. We looked at it, and it was never my intention. And maybe it was Coney's, Coney's plan all along. But it was never my plan really to collect everything together. I was just... We're just getting through it, just telling the story. This, in a sense, it's the third time it's been published because it originally was, play, it was published in the standalone 12-page comics. 
the process is always a nightmare. I always say to, to my students, because I, I teach a graphic novel here, I must love doing it because I can't think of any other reason I would do it. Because I absolutely hate every aspect of, of this process. There's no, there's no easy part. Every, every part of it is difficult. So it must come from a, from a place of deep kind of love for, for the medium. I'm looking at Julia having a good chuckle there um, over the water in Toronto. I have a group of friends that we meet every Tuesday called the Toronto Comic Jam, and we make spontaneous comics every week. And every time that we have these conversations, it's always like, man, this sucks. We're working on our own projects or talking about our own projects that we're working on. We're like, it's so much work. It's so much work. And if you're working collaboratively, you get a fight <laughs> because everyone has their own ideas of what they want to do. And as someone who works like collaboratively on, a, on another comic, it's hard to work with other people on such a personal thing when you've attached your emotions to this piece of work that you've been working on for such a long time and then having to fight over typography. So we're going with, with teal instead of a light blue. I don't know about that one, boys. You get very emotionally invested in the work that you're doing, and I 100% relate. But then the feeling when it's done, and you're like, we did this, we did this, and it's done, and we did it together. That's so cool. Like, that just feels like the but, best <laughs> feeling. It is in, it's fascinating to hear you talk about how difficult it can be and how challenging it can be. I'm just showing on the screen, if you hadn't seen it, this is a couple of the panes that I'm sharing on the screen. One looking at the police intervention, the second one around some of the discussions and the layout of the informal settlement at the time. Any thoughts when you see these in revisiting the work uh, a number of years on? It's ironic that you chose these specifically, Peter, because the artwork here, despite that, this was done by Ashley Murray. And so he's such a good artist. I'm sure he struggles maybe when we don't see him, but it makes it, everything he does so seamless. You can, you can, you can ask him anything, to, to draw anything, and he'll just, he'll just do it easily. But when I look at this specifically, the stuff he's showing is was my Mama Yanda drinking the cup of tea with the, the background. I remember we had a big argument with Kony about this drawing because the artist would actually originally drew, drew it. She didn't have the head covering. Um, you could see her hair, but the way it drew the hair looked so beautiful. And then Kony said, we have to change that because a big part of the story was actually the fact that she, this is this, this part of the story, it's, it's about her humiliation and kind of she gets attacked and then her husband's burned off, burned down and she felt so humiliated partially because she wasn't allowed to cover her hair. So this is a good example actually of when the art had to kind of fall into line with the history because if it was just me i'd be like history you know because i love the, the way i should do the hair and that panel would look so amazing i would have let the history suffer there but in the end Kony was right then i look at the panels here with the shacks there's nothing worse in the world than, than having to draw shacks over and over and over and over because when you're drawing a a, a structure like a building it's kind of all buildings kind of look more or less look the same and you don't have to think too much about it. But the shacks are constructed in such creative ways. And it's such a kind of, obviously, this kind of free-flowing way. So you constantly have to think creatively when you throw a shack. It has to look like it just developed like that naturally over time, all, this, all the rubble. 
when I see um, these drawings, I think I can remember more or less every panel where we were when that was done. It makes such an impression on you and all art felt when Ashley brought the artwork was it was it kind of we always bring the artwork in in, in person I felt when I would see it or stuff I was happy about stuff I was unhappy about and stuff that would inevitably lead to as we discussed earlier the arguments but I remember all those things it's a strange thing also that as time passes I become a lot more generous towards the work because if you showed me this say two years ago I would switch up my screen. I wouldn't want to see it because I'd be so disappointed in <laughs> in the the final result. You know what I mean? But as time as time goes on, it's like start to feel like, oh, we did well. We did we did the best we could do. At the yeah, time, you know what I mean. I think you should give yourselves a break. <laughs> a break. As as somebody who was dipping into it, I, I came across, and I think the point that you make that this is almost the third publication. Firstly, through those sort of comic books. Second, the actual sort of the, 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 the composite in this second print of the composite. It really is a remarkable story and it's a remarkable uh, piece of art. And interesting enough what you're saying, Nathan, that the image there that we're looking at has actually become the, the sort of the front cover. You know, that all, for all that challenge, it's actually the main uh, article that now leads the, the, the publication and almost has become the icon for any of the online content you'll see. So yeah, very interesting. And thanks for sharing some of those stark reflections, Nathan. If we just quickly flick to a couple of those that you had done, Julia, we've already mentioned that. There was also this one, I, I thought this was, you know, <laughs> sort of see myself there, the town planner, you know, drawing the lines on the map or writing the policies and trying to address and serve the people. But sometimes we don't get it right. And that's you know, why these conversations, we continue to have it of saying, how do we build the, 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 the connect and at times address the disconnect of all the fancy words, all the fancy policies, what do they mean and how do they actually start to impact? And I also thought this was a, a really strong unifying factor for this conversation today, where one of the panels, again, if uh, listeners are only listening to this, opposed to watching it, there's the one panel where you talk about the black communities, for example, being redlined, segregated neighborhoods, all these things that within South African history, obviously so embedded and entrenched within our history, but obviously very similar in many of the parts of uh, America, the United States and so forth. So yeah, these were a couple of panels that I chose and just going through those, and we'll share the links for those who are listening and have not not able to, to see this at this stage. But when you look back at this, again, how do you feel when you think back? I think it's about three or four months ago now since your publication was in, in, in The Guardian. Yeah, I feel really proud. Usually after I make something, I'm like, 10 minutes later, I'm like, this is garbage. Because <laughs> I, I could see all the mistakes. But I think what I've done here, I'm actually really happy with just because I think it puts the people first and I know that it's not necessarily the intentional fault of city planners and designers to make these mistakes, quote unquote, to not consult the people who are living there first. They, they think, oh, like the research shows this is beneficial, right? But when you ask people what they want or what they need, maybe they're priorities are different than necessarily what the studies say are the most efficient way, or this is the most economical way to do it. 
that there was like some research that I was reading in Spain, but they had this big initiative where they wanted to increase the side that the sidewalks to make walkability. And the community had a big backlash because they didn't care about that. <laughs> they were like, this is not what our priority is. What, what is really hurting us right now is this. And I can see that kind of in my own city in Toronto where there's construction all the time and they're always like, oh, this is going to benefit people. And then they do it and everyone's like, why did you do that? <laughs> you know, because they're like, oh, like, you know, we need more affordable housing. And then they tear down a heritage building that has been part of the community for over 50 years. And I'm like, maybe you should have asked <laughs> what the community wants. Yes, we want affordable housing, but maybe we don't destroy heritage buildings that are a part of our culture and a part of like our city that makes us Toronto, right? Thinking about those kinds of things, about asking people, especially the people who don't usually have a voice that don't have a lot of political power. The poor people who are discouraged to vote that feel like voting is not effective because they haven't been listened to because a lot of obviously all over the world, like politicians clearly care a lot about the voters who make money because that's where they get the funding, et cetera. If we just start asking people, hey, what would you like? In Toronto, they've been doing this like really nice initiative of hiring artists to paint on electrical boxes and cycle tracks, like the barriers between the cycle track and the road. And we've gotten such great feedback from that. And it's making cities not just better for future climate disasters, but also to make the people who are living there happy, right? Everyone wants to have a perfectly economical, perfect climate change response or whatever, but if it destroys the culture, if it makes the city ugly, if it makes it unwalkable, if it disrupts the people that are living there, then what's the point? I think some of like the most interesting research that I came across was a sort of tiling method that can be implemented in many different ways and different scenarios where you take little blocks in the city, like an empty parking lot that's not being used, and you turn that into a greenhouse. And now instead of driving 45 minutes to an hour outside of the city to go pick some apples for Thanksgiving or whatever, <laughs> you can just literally walk down the street and you have your orchard there. And maybe that orchard is right next to your grocery store. Maybe it's right next to a school. Maybe it's right next to a high rise. Those are some of those pinprick interventions yeah. that the strip talks to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And kind of making the city more accessible by diversifying inside of these neighborhoods. So that it's not just suburban scrawl. As someone who lived in the suburbs for a long time, it sucks. <laughs> you have to drive everywhere. The transit is bad. And you don't do anything. Your only options are maybe the mall and maybe sitting outside in the park. When you have like miles of houses and nothing else in between, that doesn't give me joy. That doesn't give a lot of people joy. What, Making what, things accessible and walkable, I think is really important. 
one day, Julia, we'll introduce you to some of our uh, real challenges here in South Africa, where some of those uh, issues that you've talked about, uh, we've got them on steroids here, particularly the experience for those, you know, really suffering in terms of their living conditions, those transport, the mobility, those are real issues, which are just compounded. But let's maybe just talk about the impact that your respective uh, pieces of work have had. Committed element I will is received. The story has one goal and that goal is to be told. And once you've told the story, it isn't really about it being ready when the desire to be ready it comes from the artist. You know, I need that as an artist, as a person, my ego, whatever. You know, I need people to tell me it's great, but so but the story itself, I never think about it in terms of how it's been received because I know some of the women that Connie interviewed, they read the book and that they loved it and they loved seeing themselves in me. And so what else do I really need? You know what I mean? And to me, in that way, it's kind of the purpose of story is to tell the story and then it's out there and maybe someday ask the questions that the this book answers. So they'll have this resource. They'll have this, for good me, to me, it's more of about keeping a record of a moment in time than anything else. It's kind of, it's like Toy Story. And like we and these toys, we just have to be... <laughs> And if when Andy grows up, we just have to be there for in case the kid wants to play with us. The value of the story isn't isn't doesn't lie in being being um, read. The value in the story is is that every book is a library. Every book is as a is kind of deal of great deal of knowledge and experience that's going into it that someone might need someday. But I simple way of saying it's like I don't, I don't know how people receive the book. <laughs> The impression that I get is that it has been well received. It's been internationally acclaimed. And again, to you and the team, it, it really is a, a fantastic yeah, testimonial yeah. To, to that story. And Julia, other than being asked to come on to South African podcasts and talk about your strip, how, how, has the, how was that received? What was the feedback you got for, from, for example, The Guardian themselves? I think you've said you've actually gone and done a second a piece of work for them. Maybe just tell us about the reaction you received and what you hope to achieve going forward on this. I was actually really pleasantly surprised. In my last comic that I did for them, which was about mercury poisoning in North American waterways, I got a lot of more messages about climate change is a hoax and all that stuff. I got a lot of like that, but this one, less of that, which I was very happy about. And a lot of like academics messaging me and tweeting me and sharing my comic and saying, I'm going to show this to my students. I'm going to share this with my colleagues. I think this is like a really great demonstration of how we can make this kind of education more accessible because I feel like a lot of us are very pessimistic about the future and very sad about our perspective prospects. And a lot of us feel powerless to do anything about that. And I think people kind of resonated a lot with the idea that the best way to address this kind of thing is at the local level, worrying about what you can do as an individual on a global scale is, first of all, kind of impossible unless you're like the prime minister. You, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's like as an individual person, it's very hard to make those kinds of big things, like these big changes that'll stop the oil companies or whatever. That feels very out of touch. And so a lot of us feel nihilistic and depressed about our future and our own power. And I think reading about how actually 
a lot of research says that starting things on the local level, doing localized solutions, making individual communities better and starting on small scales is actually more effective because in my comic, I mentioned that one size doesn't fit all. You can't just do a blanket policy that'll affect an entire country when the country is big and has different problems affecting different areas, different weather conditions, different landscapes. Some are seaside, some are mountainous. You can't just say, we're going to do this all over the place because it won't work all over the place. And so I feel a lot of people resonated with the idea of making their individual communities better, getting involved more in local politics and making smaller changes that way, which I think is honestly a much better way of dealing with that kind of anxiety that we feel about the future, thinking like, oh, okay, I don't have to take on the entire world. I can just take on my city. (laughs) Maybe email my counselor and be like, hey, can we do something about this? It it sounds like if you ever decide to give up the illustrating, you can certainly go into either public service or (laughs) in a political way or as a civil servant. It really came across really well. What is the role, do you think, of storytelling in 2022? The two of you have demonstrated that it can be a very powerful medium. Is it something that's still relevant in 2022 when you talk to your students, Nathan? What is it that you are trying to inculcate within them as the sort of their obligations and uh, responsibilities taking this this to the next level? Yeah, I always kind of look at storytelling, man. And, and I think that the role of storytelling 2022 is the same as storytelling in 1800s. will never change. I think that people will always need these stories, always come back to it because what we're trying to do is kind of give a mature message, you know what I mean? You're saying something that's going to mean something to a, to a person who's struggling with something or trying to understand something. And you always, always have those people. And most people go through those phases in their lives where, 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 where the kind of the snappy things, the the, 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 the burst of information doesn't necessarily, won't necessarily do it for them all the time. Sometimes they want to go and find, do a deep dive into something and find something. So I always tell, I always tell my students, I always tell them you have a responsibility. Well, firstly, to your, towards yourself, in terms of keeping a record of your life, keeping a, a record of your existence. You have a responsibility to those people who, who are unable to do that. You know, even when, when I look look at something like Crossroads, if I have to, if I have to Google shacks, I can't, you know, there's not really any kind of reference for it. There's, not any kind of, there's a lot of things in my life that I grew up with. There's no reference for on the internet because no one's bothered to, to, to tell that story. No one's been bothered to kind of put the information there because the lives of poor people, man, it's unimportant. No one cares. So I take it on myself as as not not as an outsider, but as an as an insider, someone who's from that background, to say, okay, I'm gonna in all my work I do this not with crossroads, just with just, just with crossroads, but to say that okay, I'm gonna put something out there. And it's a way of saying that we existed. We were here because if you look at it, lives of poor people now is the same as lives of poor people be the able times. You know what I mean? We don't we don't know anything about these people. We know about kings, we know about you know, the upper classes, we know about their lives. We know nothing about about these people. We, we probably relate to more than we do to modern politicians. That's for me that's a role of storytelling is is to is to appreciate the, the power of the written word, the power of printing. Because you know, I you 
put something down there forever. And that's such a privilege because when you look at back then, it didn't, people talk. If someone doesn't record the story, the oral tradition doesn't kind of carry over and, and so many stories get lost. So we have a privilege of being able to tell the stories. Um, you can't tell the stories on TikTok. You can't tell the stories on, 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 on Snapchat. There's some numbers there. And we have our own numbers. When, when there's some numbers there in terms of what you can do. So to me, that's the role of storytelling, yeah, essentially. Julia, from your side, any thoughts or additions to or a different take on that? Yeah, I think a lot of what you were saying, like how certain voices haven't been elevated in terms of history. I kind of participate in zine culture. I'm not sure if you guys know what zines are, but they're basically tiny little published books, self-published books that are made by basically anyone. If you're a poet, a writer, an illustrator, you basically make really cheap, tiny little books and they can be personal, they can be fictional, they can really honestly be whatever you want it to be. But I find that engaging in a lot of these self-published, small, independent artists selling their little mini stories really I collect them actually kind of gives me that bigger, a better picture. It's really, really fun because there's so many different perspectives that you can get that wouldn't be published by traditional publishers because their stories are not highbrow enough because there is a big gatekeeping problem in the publishing industry. They're like, oh, what, what is acceptable? What is good enough, right? What stories are interesting enough for the general public? Whereas like zines, like, you just publish them yourself and then you give them to your friends, you sell them at a local market or whatever. I feel like that kind of storytelling of allowing yourself to put out these little tidbits of your life, these little snippets of what you're going through, I think are really, really important. It's very accessible. And I think like those kinds of methods of storytelling of accessibility, most of them are around five to ten dollars. Like they're pretty cheap. Storytelling in that way, at this micro level, it gives you more of a snapshot of the real people who are living there, and it gives a voice to the people who otherwise would have not been heard at all because big publishing companies would have thought this isn't important, this isn't interesting for a general public. Uh, I understand there's an event happening there in Toronto in the near future. Tell us a bit about that. I'm sure you've probably never heard of it. It's called TCAF. It's the biggest comic arts festival in all of Canada. And uh, I'm going to be there. And I'm so excited. If you ever are around in June, not maybe this year, but maybe next year, TCAF, if you are into comics or into visual storytelling, that is the place to be. We get like international guests come. We have people from the States. We got uh, a famous horror manga artist, Junji Ito, coming in not last year or the year before. I think it was just before COVID, which was a huge deal. We were like, oh my God, famous Junji Ito. So if you ever are around in June, TCAF definitely is the place to be for visual mediums. There's lots of, lots of really cool stuff there. All, all, of, all the best to you today. I hope it's a real success for you personally as much as fun yeah. for you personally. If I remember correctly, you've got your own website where people can find out more about your work. Maybe you want yes. to share that so that people can hook in. And uh, if you see an uptake in your South African traffic, you know where it comes from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be really nice. My website is julialouisebrera.com. 
very simple. I was glad that no one else had my name <laughs> because otherwise I'd be in trouble. <laughs> so that's Ju Ju Julia, J-U-L-I-A, Louise, that's L-O-U-I-S-E, and Pereira is P-E-R-E-I-R-A at? Uh, dot com. Dot com. So there you go, Julia Louise Pereira dot com. Perfect. And Nathan, your end, where can people find out more about either the work you're doing? We'll share the Jakarna, I think it's .co.za publishing that if people want to look at not, not only the crossroads, but there's, things, there's also things like the All Rise is the other one that I think is something that you've worked on. And then there was the Coloreds. Yeah. So where can people find out a bit more about what you've done and what you're going to be doing? I know we can, we can find the book at Clocks and Book Lounge and at the Commune in Joburg and via the British website, I don't know. That's for North American listeners. Fantastic. Well, I say Jakana, that's J-A-C-A-N-A.co.za. We'll share it in the Twitter, yeah. the, the, the media we put out on this. Nathan, thank you so much for giving some of your Sunday afternoon up. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate what you've done for the South African history. It really is a remarkable thank piece you. of work. Gorgeous. So gorgeous. Cheers, like, I can't wait to add it to my collection of uh, graphic novels. It's cheers. Really nice. Cheers, Julia. Cheers, man. Thanks. Julia, Thank to you, man. all the best. Have a lovely rest of your Sunday. Enjoy enjoy Toronto. I'm sure you're going to have a lovely day there. In the meantime, colleagues, all the very best and thanks for your time today. Cheers, guys. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed this content of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please feel free to give us feedback via our Twitter platform. That's at Talking Transfo and the number one, or alternatively via our email address, talkingtransformation101 at gmail.com. Thanks and recognition also to Tribal Need for allowing us to use their track, Flags, as our introductory and closeout music on this podcast.